please uh, join me in welcoming Nicholas uh, and his presentation on the Quebec referendum of 1995, so near and yet so far. Thank you very much, uh, Tony, for that uh, introduction. Um, and I'm uh, very happy to be here um, in this hospitable environment. On Monday the 30th of October 1995, the people of Quebec voted in a referendum on whether to remain part of Canada. The turnout was extremely high, 93%. 49.4% voted yes, i.e. to separate. 50.6% voted no. So Quebecers decided to stay in Canada by a margin of barely 1%. Yet 20 years later, Canada is still united. In this lecture, I shall consider how this referendum happened as the third in a series. I will then suggest why it has not been repeated. And in my conclusions, I shall explore parallels with referenda facing the United Kingdom today in relation to Scotland and the European Union. I've drawn on my experience at, as British High Commissioner to Canada at that time, and I've had great help from two former colleagues, Ivor Rawlinson, who was then Consul General in Montreal, and Patrick Hoditch, the head of my political section in Ottawa. Patrick recently held the Montreal post as well, and he's here today. From its creation in 1867, the Dominion of Canada was a federation. It began with four founding provinces, which have now risen to ten, plus three Arctic territories. One feature of politics in federations, which is unfamiliar here in England, is a power struggle between the central government and the component provinces. And there's often rivalry among the provinces as well. And in Canada, Quebec habitually asserted itself more than the others. And that was because of the, its long-standing French legacy of history, language, law, and culture, which defined its identity. Yet, by the 20th century, Quebec had also become an economic powerhouse, centred on the cosmopolitan city of Montreal. Many large Canadian firms were based there, and the city hosted the World Fair and the Olympic Games. This prosperity attracted English speakers to the province in increasing numbers, which challenged the Francophone traditions. And a movement emerged which argued that Quebec could only preserve its identity if it separated itself from the rest of Canada. And this movement profited from the decline of the Roman Catholic Church, which had been the historic foundation of Quebec. Separatism was manifested in various ways. President Charles de Gaulle, when he visited Montreal, famously cried out, Vive le Québec libre! A terrorist group, the Front de Libération de Québec, the FLQ, kidnapped James Cross, the British Trade Commissioner, and Pierre Laporte, a Quebec minister. Cross was released, but Laporte was murdered, and Pierre Trudeau, as Canadian Prime Minister, 
invoked federal emergency laws and applied them with extreme rigour. Yet the most lasting sign of separatism was the formation of the Parti Québécois, PQ for short, in 1968, led by René Lévesque and with Jacques Parizeau as a founder member. The goal of the PQ was Quebec sovereignty, and that meant separating Quebec from the rest of Canada, though without necessarily going as far as complete independence. In 1976, the PQ won the provincial election, defeating the Quebec Liberal Party under Robert Bourassa. And thereafter, the PQ and the Liberals alternated in power in Quebec at intervals of exactly nine years, up until 2012. René Lévesque, as Premier, invited Quebecers to vote for sovereignty association in a referendum in May 1980, the first of the three. Despite, or perhaps because of the ambiguity of the new status proposed for Quebec, it was rejected by 60% against 40 on an 86% turnout. Even so, Quebec suffered economic damage as big firms moved away and outside investment dried up. Lévesque never contemplated another referendum and the PQ lost power in 1985 and the matter might have rested there except for Trudeau's intervention. Trudeau, himself a Quebecer, was a conviction politician, combative and single-minded. Returned to power in 1980, he resolved to unify Canada by amending the Constitution. He put his justice minister, another Quebecer called Jean Chrétien, in charge of the process. In a speech just before the referendum, Trudeau promised Quebecers that if they rejected sovereignty, they would benefit from his constitutional reforms. These reforms introduced a new Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which provided that all Canadians should have access to education in both English and French. But education was a provincial responsibility, and Quebec law required public education to be conducted in French. So Quebecers felt betrayed by Trudeau. When other provinces were brought to accept Trudeau's reforms, Lévesque held out against them. He mounted a legal challenge to the Constitution Act of 1982, though without success. The Act became law, but Quebec refused to ratify it. Trudeau had sought to unify Canada, but ended by increasing tension between Quebec and the rest. After Trudeau retired, the federal election of 1984 was won by the Conservatives, led by Brian Mulroney, another Quebecer of Irish ancestry. He campaigned on a promise to reconcile Quebec to the rest of Canada, which gained him many seats in the province. And in provincial, provincial elections, <clears throat> the Quebec Liberals defeated the PQ and Robert Bourassa returned to office. I never saw Trudeau in action, but I observed Mulroney at close quarters. He was a deal-maker and a conciliator who used his Irish charm to win people round. He got Bourassa to devise formally that would appeal to Quebec 
and these are put to the other provincial premiers as part of a new constitutional settlement, the Meech Lake Accord of 1987. The key provisions were Quebec was recognised as a distinct society, more powers were transferred to the provinces, and future constitutional amendments would require the assent of all provinces. Meech Lake was welcomed by, in Quebec. It was accepted by the federal Liberals, though not by Trudeau and Chrétien, and it found favour with public opinion. As it changed the amending formula in the Constitution, it had to be ratified by all provincial legislatures within three years. But with time, opinion in the rest of Canada turned against the accord, which was thought to give unfair privileges to Quebec. As the deadline approached, two provinces failed to adopt it. Time ran out and the Meech Lake Accord lapsed in 1990. Quebec saw this as a cruel rejection by the rest of Canada and separatist sentiment revived. Barassa felt obliged to promise a referendum on Quebec's future in Canada by October 1992 unless a better constitutional offer was available. This encouraged Mulroney to have another try, but conditions were now less favourable. Other provinces had their own demands. The Aboriginal peoples were seeking recognition. The Canadian people were tired of constitutional rounds. They wanted more attention to economic issues. Because mounting public debt had obliged Mulroney to cut back public spending and raise taxes, and this was not well received. I arrived in Ottawa in 1992 as Mulroney's second attempt was reaching its climax. A conference of federal and provincial ministers was hard at work. The Queen came to Ottawa for Canada Day, 1st of July, and I heard her publicly urge the parties to agree. Sure enough, a deal was struck and a meeting between Mulroney, Bourassa and the other provincial premiers was fixed late August in Prince Edward Island, and there they formally endorsed the Charlottetown Accord. This was a clumsier package than Beach Lake. Quebec, as before, would be recognised as a distinct society, more powers shifted away from the centre, constitutional amendments agreed by all provinces. The Federal Senate would have a new method of selection, the Aboriginal peoples would move towards self-government and new rights and freedoms were formulated. This complex deal was accepted by the federal and all provincial governments. The liberal opposition, including Chrétien, though not Trudeau, and the main, the main Aboriginal leaders and most of the media. I commended it to London. Mulroney declared a nationwide referendum in October 1992, just in time for Bourassa's deadline. So Canadian elites backed the Charlottetown Accord, but the Canadian people rejected it in this second referendum by 54% against 46. The strongest rejection was in Western Canada, but it was also voted down in Quebec. And this result reflected deep public frustration. Canada was in a recession, which increased the pain 
of measures to correct the budget deficit. Canadians felt poor and put upon. They held Mulroney's government responsible and punished it by the means to hand. So Charlottetown failed, just like Meech Lake. Again, this outcome boosted separatist feeling in Quebec. Mulroney, like Trudeau, had sought to unify Canada, but he ended by increasing tension between Quebec and the rest. In 1993, Mulroney stepped down. The Conservatives went into federal elections with uncertain prospects. The Canadian people punished them again, and they were annihilated, winning only two seats, one being held in Quebec by Jean Charest. The Liberals came back under Jean Chrétien as Prime Minister. But the Liberals didn't do well in Quebec. Most seats went instead to a new party, the Bloc Québécois, or BQ, a federal manifestation of the provincial party Québécois, the PQ. The BQ was founded and led by Lucien Bouchard, who Maroney had brought into politics as part of his campaign to reconcile Quebec. He won the Conservative seat in Quebec and joined, joined Maroney's second cabinet. But after Meech Lake was rejected, he broke with Maroney and joined the separative camp. His bloc profited from Quebecers' disgust at the failure of all Maroney's policies and their mistrust of the Liberals and of Chrétien in person. They won so many seats as to be the second party in the federal parliament and to form the official opposition. Many feared dire consequences, but in fact the BQ made little impact, either in Ottawa or back in Quebec. However, Bouchard personally gained much sympathy when he survived a near-fatal disease at the cost of having a leg amputated. The Parti Québécois returned to power in September 1994, and Jacques Parizeau, the new Premier, declared he would hold a referendum on Quebec sovereignty within a year. I had met him earlier, over lunch at Ivor Rawlinson's house. His avuncular manner concealed both a lively brain, he had a doctorate from the LSE, and a fierce political determination. When he expounded his ambitions, I told him that my government wanted Canada to stay united. I'm not surprised, he said with a smile. Parizeau intended Quebec to move directly to independence. He claimed it could still use the Canadian dollar, enjoy dual citizenship, and be grandfathered in the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement. He was convinced that Quebec would prosper in those conditions and commissioned economic studies to prove it, though he suppressed those that didn't agree with his views. In his view, there was no turning back if a majority voted for sovereignty. I was at a lunch where he told the European ambassadors, including me, that Quebecers would be in a lobster pot. They couldn't escape. The phrase leaked, mistranslated, to the francophone press. That didn't capture the true impact of Parizeau's image. However, not all the PQ were as militant as Parizeau was. 
there was also a more moderate wing, led by Bouchard, who wanted the referendum to trigger negotiations with the federal government. After much debate, the party agreed to hold its referendum on Monday the 30th of October 1995 with a long question that combined both views. Do you agree that Quebec should become sovereign after having made a formal offer to Canada for a new economic and political partnership within the scope of the bill respecting the future of Quebec and of the agreement signed on June the 12th, 1995. It's almost as long as the question in the, which the Greeks will have to answer in their referendum on Sunday. This obscure final phrase referred to a pledge that post-referendum negotiations must be complete within a year. In the federal camp, Chrétien differed from both Trudeau and Maroney and wanted to avoid their mistakes. He was a cautious but determined politician who followed his instincts. He chose to adopt a low profile, convinced that the good sense of his fellow Quebecers would produce the right answer. Daniel Johnson, who now led the Quebec Liberals, also kept his head down, saying, let the PQ run themselves into the ground. Quebec knew he was unpopular in Quebec because of his links with Trudeau and largely kept out of the province. But he insisted that the referendum strategy was only handled by Quebecers in his own entourage. He encouraged Paul Martin, his finance minister from Montreal, to spell out the economic drawbacks of separation, but he often clashed with Johnson. Chrétien denied any role to people from elsewhere in Canada, and he also vetoed contingency planning against a yes vote, since this would suggest that the Federalists expected to lose. For a long time, this looked like the right strategy. Parizeau was not a good public advocate for his cause. He reassured committed separatists, but he didn't win over the undecided. Opinion polls showed support for a yes at barely 45% in early October, with a month to go. Then Parizeau handed over the campaign to Lucien Bouchard, and everything changed. Bouchard had many assets. As a moderate separatist, he believed many Quebecers weren't ready for a single leap into independence. They would prefer a transitional process before they took this irrevocable step. And this attitude attracted the small Action Démocratique de Québec into the separatist camp. He was personally popular in Quebec by having broken with Maroney after Meech Lake. And by surviving his deadly disease, he had become a sort of secular saint. His remark to the surgeons before his amputation, qu'on continue, keep going, was taken as an appeal to the separatist camp. And finally, he was a magnetic orator and attracted vast crowds to his public rallies. He captured people's attention and he won them to his side. And so opinion polls moved steadily in the separatists' favour. With a week to go 
They were showing the yes side ahead. Chrétien's strategy was close to collapse, and there was panic in Ottawa. Ten days before the vote, Johnson appealed to Chrétien to repeat the pledges of constitutional change to benefit Quebec. But Chrétien refused. This, however, leaked to the press, and he had to eat his words. Speaking in Montreal, he promised a new deal that would confirm Quebec as a distinct society and increase provincial powers. He also made two sombre appeals on the television, in French and English. Meanwhile, as concern mounted across the country, Chrétien's ministers from outside Quebec could no longer endure the prospect of Canada coming apart. They overrode his order to keep silent and mounted a vast demonstration in Montreal, 150,000 strong, three days before the vote. This put over the message that the rest of Canada wanted Quebec to stay. Bill Clinton in Washington declared publicly he hoped Canada would stay united. Jacques Chirac said darkly France would recognise the results if Quebec voted yes. I advised against any public statement from London, though John Major sent Chrétien a personal message of support. I read this to him over the telephone. He told me the no camp was regaining lost ground and the Montreal rally had been a shot in the arm. But if yes should win, he hoped the UK would still back the federal government, as the referendum in itself changed nothing. On referendum day, Parizeau and Bouchard, convinced that they would win, were drafting their victory speeches. In Ottawa, I accompanied John Coles, the head of the FCO, on some rather unreal talks at the Department of Foreign Affairs. After dinner, we sat before the television to watch the results come in district by district. For some reason, the rural francophone districts reported first. Suspense grew as the yes votes built up a dangerous lead. The Montreal results only began to come in after 10pm. The no votes inched up the dial to just past the total for yes. The disappointment proved too hard for Parizeau to bear. In public, he blamed his defeat on money and the ethnic vote. He resigned at once after this racist comment. He had intended to do so anyway, if the vote had gone against him. Let me now consider three questions. What would have happened if the yes side had won? What caused this unusual results with so large a turnout and so narrow a margin of decision? And why has Canada remained in why has Quebec remained in Canada after coming so close to leaving? Chantal Hébert and Jean Pierre have just published, published a whole book on the first question, which I commend highly. I can record what the High Commission thought would happen at the time. Chrétien had forbidden any contingency plans. There were none. But he had left some clues. And our view was that he would keep Parizeau guessing 
as long as possible. He would contest the results and launch a legal challenge to it, especially if the margin was small. He would drag his feet over any negotiations, and if Parizeau declared Quebec independent unilaterally, Chrétien would deny his right to break up Canada. A few months later, press reports revealed that Parizeau had anticipated that Chrétien would play for time, and he'd lined up measures to force his hand. The provincial assembly in Quebec would meet at once. A supportive letter from local dignitaries would be published. Canadian soldiers stationed in Quebec would be invited to join the new Quebec army. And all embassies in Ottawa were lobbied to extend diplomatic recognition. Parizeau's trump card was a pledge by Jacques Chirac that France would at once recognise Quebec as an independent state and encourage other Francophone countries to do so. Chirac evidently made this very gaullist promise when Parizeau had visited Paris back in January, before Chirac became president. We can't be sure if he would have, have honoured his pledge, but my colleague, the French ambassador, was very worried he would announce it even before the referendum vote. How should one interpret this, the actual results? A month before the referendum, it looked as if yes side was bound to lose, with polls giving them less than 45% of the vote. Bouchard's rhetoric then brought them to within a whisker of 50% on the day, while all the opinion polls forecast that they would win. The turnout of 93% was exceptional even by Quebec standards. In my view, the yes side was indeed heading for victory. But events in the last few days brought out a late surge in no voters, which the polls didn't catch. Two events could have encouraged this. Chrétien's pledge of constitutional reforms and the pro-Canada rally in Montreal. At the time, I believe that Chrétien's move was decisive, but now I'm more sceptical. It was clearly an act of desperation against his settled principles. <clears throat> After the event, he carried out his promise very inconspicuously by a resolution in Parliament to recognise Quebec as a distinct society and to give Quebec, Ontario, Atlantic Canada and Western provinces a veto on constitutional change but it attracted very little notice. At the time, Daniel Johnson thought the Montreal rally made things worse, though Chrétien gave his consent and welcomed it later. But if it had really irritated Quebecers, the yes vote would have been even larger than the polls forecast. I prefer to think that the demonstration provided something that had been missing till then. The campaigners on both sides, being from Quebec themselves, focused exclusively on what Quebecers would, Quebecers would gain or what they would lose by leaving Canada. Until the Montreal rally, no one had shown Quebecers what they gained by staying in Canada as part of this wider community. The rally 
serve to dramatise the choice facing Quebec. Its positive and emotional message might not have changed people's minds, but I believe it encouraged those still undecided who would have stayed at home to turn out and vote no. And these were just enough to tip the scale and produce the exceptional level of votes cast. If the rest of Canada could produce so strong an impact, why did Chrétien exclude them from the campaign? I believe previous experience had made him mistrustful. Other provincial governments, after initial resistance, had left Quebec isolated in opposing Trudeau's constitutional reforms. Provincial legislatures had frustrated Meech Lake, while the electorates of Western Canada had voted massively against Charlottetown. On each occasion, Quebec had felt rejected by the rest of Canada and support for separation had surged. This time, Chrétien had wanted the Quebecers to make up their own minds without outside influences. But in fact, this played into the separatists' hands with almost fatal results. After this nail-biting referendum results, many observers thought Quebec was bound to leave Canada eventually. I told London, for the first time, I conclude that the odds are against Canada remaining united. Francophone Quebecers made up 80% of the population and 60% of them had voted yes. There had been a steady outflow of English speakers and other non-Francophones since 1980 and this gathered speed right after the referendum. It looked as if demographic trends would deliver the province to the separatists in a few years' time. Yet, even before I left Canada in February 1996, I was already changing my mind. One reason was voter fatigue. Lucien Bouchard quickly replaced Pariseau as Quebec Premier. He was widely expected to call new elections, followed very soon by another referendum. But Bouchard didn't want another referendum unless he could win it. Quebecers had endured non-stop politics for four years. A referendum, federal elections, provincial elections, and another referendum. He couldn't rely on them turning out again. They needed a rest. Bouchard also wanted to delay until Quebec was strong enough to thrive on its own. Public finances in Canada both federal and provincial, were heavily indebted. Paul Martin had imposed deep public spending cuts to balance the Canadian budget and reduce the, reduce the burden of federal debt. Quebec had the largest provincial debt in relation to its size. Bouchard made the restoration of healthy finances and buoyant economic growth his first priority. In the event... Bouchard never felt strong enough to launch another referendum, though he was re-elected in 1998. Nor did his successor, Bernard Landry, a close ally of Parisien. This was because Jean Charest, last recorded as the sole federal conservative in the province, had become leader of the Quebec Liberals, 
and had revived their fortunes. In 2003, after the usual nine years in power, the PQ lost power to the Liberals. And this suggested that the Quebec population were no longer hooked on separation. Lucien Bouchard, who had sought to divide Canada, ended by keeping Quebec within it. In Ottawa, meanwhile, Cartier was sharply criticised for nearly allowing the breakup of Canada. In response, he asked the Supreme Court to rule on whether Quebec had the right to, succeed, to secede from Canada unilaterally. The court's answer was nicely balanced. Quebec had no right to secede unilaterally, but the Canadian government was bound to negotiate if Quebecers expressed a clear will to secede. The Canadian Parliament could also decide if a referendum question was clear enough to trigger negotiations. Both federal and Quebec governments said they were pleased with the judgment. Quebec used the judgment of the basis of the Federal Clarity Act of 2000, but he went further. The Act empowered the Canadian Parliament to determine in advance of the vote if a referendum question in Quebec or any other province was precise enough. After the vote, Quebec, after the vote Parliament could decide if a clear will had been expressed and override a referendum result that was contrary to the Act. This law was not well received. It was attacked by other provinces, as well as Quebec, and opposed by the survivors of the federal Conservatives. Since Stephen Harper led the Conservatives back to power in 2006, he has been careful not to reopen the Quebec issue. He skillfully defused a manoeuvre by the Bloc Québécois soon after he took office. The Bloc won only four seats in the 2001 federal elections, being largely replaced by the centre-left New Democrats. Cartier often said that he was proud of the Clarity Act, yet I doubt whether it would be an effective defence against a strongly-backed separatist movement. It imposes constraints before a referendum vote, especially on how the question is drafted. But the powers given to the federal parliament to reverse the vote once taken could prove impossible to enforce. The best protection lies in changing opinion in the Quebec population. And here, the latest news is encouraging. Jean Charest's time as Quebec Premier lasted the usual nine years. In 2012, despite the eclipse of the federal BQ, the PQ regained power, though only with a plurality of seats. The new Premier, Pauline Marois, made no promises of a future referendum, preferring to wait till she could win a clear majority. She started well and felt confident enough to call early elections in April last year. But her plans went badly awry. During the campaign, a die-hard separatist, Pierre-Carl Pelladeau, declared in a public rally that a PQ majority would be the signal for a new referendum. This was not what the Quebec electorate wanted to hear. 
they voted the Liberals back into power with 70 seats and a large majority. The PQ won only 30 seats, with their smallest share of the vote since 1970, their first appearance. They have since chosen Pelado as their new leader, which does not suggest an early revival. And meanwhile, Jacques Parizeau has died. One shouldn't read too much into these events. But Quebec politics has clearly moved a long way from what I remember 20 years ago. To conclude, let me offer some reflections in the light of what the United Kingdom is facing. Like Canada, the UK has to survive the ordeal of three referenda. One on Scotland, just passed, one on Europe within two years, and a looming second one on Scotland. Now these reflections come with a health warning. Historical comparisons can seriously distort your judgment. Yet, subject to that, I think Canada offers both salutary lessons and reasons for hope. And here are four suggested lessons. Lesson one, do not make rash promises. Back in 1980, Trudeau <coughs> rashly promised measures that would benefit the Quebecers if they voted no to sovereignty. This was unnecessary, as there was a majority for no anyway. Far from helping the Quebecers, his measures alienated them with ominous consequences. Chrétien, likewise, made last-minute promises in 1995, which didn't carry conviction. This is something for the UK authorities to avoid in both European and Scottish contexts. Lesson two, remember votes in referenda are volatile. In referenda, electors don't always vote on the question. They're often expressing their frustration with government more generally. In 1992, the Canadian public people used the referendum to publish Maroney for neglecting their economic problems. The UK government must be careful not to alienate the electorate for reasons unrelated to the referendum, especially in the EU vote. The voters aren't greatly turned on by Europe and could easily be distracted. Lesson three. Expect opinion polls to behave erratically. Up to a month before the 1995 referendum, the polls showed the no side winning easily. By the day of the vote, they forecast a victory for yes. The same thing happened before last year's Scottish referendum, prompting the no side to make hasty promises whose impact is still hard to foresee. In future referenda, the UK government should recognise that sudden lurches in the polls are liable to happen. They should have contingency plans ready and not be panicked into ill-prepared action. <clears throat> Lesson four, campaign positively and vigorously. The no campaign in 1995 was low-key, appealed to reason, and pointed out the dangers of separation. It was negative and nearly led to disaster. By contrast, the Yes campaign in Quebec was visible, appealed to the heart, and spelt out the benefits of Quebec sovereignty. It was thus positive, 
only the emotional appeal of the last Montreal rally saved the no side. In Scotland last year, there was a similar contrast between the yes and no campaigns. The emotions aroused continue to sustain the yes side, even though they lost. Unlike Canada, voter fatigue has not set in. For both the Europe referendum and a second Scottish one, when it comes, the UK government needs to rethink its strategy. This should articulate the benefits of being part of the European Union and the United Kingdom, rather than the drawbacks of leaving. It should appeal to wider ambitions and aspirations, not rely on economic calculations. And I conclude with two reasons for hope concerning Scotland, which have already been spotted by The Economist. See the issue of the 23rd of May. Hopeful factor number one, regional parties have a hard time in national parliaments. The amazing success of the Scottish nationalists in the last UK elections has aroused deep fears. And SNP members, as the third largest party at Westminster, expect to make a powerful impact and advance their cause. The fate of the Bloc Québécois in Ottawa suggests otherwise. Though they were the second party in Parliament and the official opposition, their impact was limited. They could speak freely, but they couldn't get anything done. They were still a minority and had no allies among the other parties. And the SNP faces similar handicaps. However, it's not what the SNP does in Westminster that will decide another Scottish referendum, but what happens in Scotland. And this leads to hopeful factor number two. When will conditions be right for a second referendum? When Bouchard took over from Parizeau, he decided to wait before holding another referendum. He wanted to ensure that Quebec's economy was strong enough to survive on its own, detached from Canada. Only then would he feel confident of winning a second referendum. But his chance never came. The position in Scotland is similar. Nicola Sturgeon won't want to risk another referendum unless she can win it. But Scotland's economic prospects, as proclaimed by Alex Salmon last September, looked doubtful even then. They are now clearly worse because of the drop in the price of oil, Scotland's major asset. The UK government has undertaken to pass more powers to Scotland. If these require the Scots to raise more of their own revenue, this should reveal the true economic outlook of an independent Scotland. Conditions for winning a new referendum may be slow to materialise. I hope profoundly that the referenda in prospect leave both the United Kingdom and the European Union intact. If so, we may have Canada's example to thank for it. Thank you.